we can't in all consciousness and access to our full agency embrace and support our own children our community everyone that we intersect with because we have internalized oppressive beliefs it's an enactment of a long history of pain that we've all inherited but that we can undo and deconstruct so that we do that less in our more in the way that we choose to be hey y'all so sometimes it feels like the world is working completely against us or that there are just so many barriers why are some things easier for us and harder for others why are some things harder for us and easier for others? There are lots of reasons why this is true, but part of the reason has to do with the way that the world is set up from to begin with. Sometimes we look around and turn on the news and it feels like we're just being pummeled with injustice. Whether it's hearing about a woman killed in a DV incident or a person of color harassed or killed by those who are supposed to protect them, or political movements to limit access to healthcare, or people protesting in the streets, it just feels really overwhelming. Maybe you've already been fighting social biases based on race, income, or ability, and now here comes this trans kid who you love more than life, and they're thrusting you into a whole new world of oppression that you probably didn't even know existed. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host, Mackenzie Dunham. I think that the advocacy and inclusion work as a parent of a trans kid is almost inevitable. You're going to find yourself in positions to educate and advocate over and over and over and over and over again. Some parents find this to be overwhelming. Others find it to be empowering and love being able to find their voice as they fight for their child's rights. I don't think any parent recognizes that this is going to be part of their parenting journey until they're facing discrimination head on. They didn't know that the person that they might be pushing back against are their friends, their families, their colleagues, their boss. And sometimes they can get resentful of how their child doesn't have the same privileges that they thought they did and how their lack of gender privilege is spilling onto them. Today's campfire guest is a therapist, social justice advocate, racial equity trainer, small business owner, and overall badass, Martha Stebbins. Martha owns Menti Counseling and Consulting in Seattle, Washington. She's bilingual, bicultural, and her pronouns are she, Aya. Martha and I first met in a certificate program we were both doing at Widener University. She's probably one of the most knowledgeable clinicians I've ever met when it comes to little kids and trauma, but she has the added bonus of a wealth of knowledge and experience in helping families of color navigate mental health and social justice. As you listen to us talk, I encourage you to think about your social position. How do you fit into the bigger picture? How do you understand how the big picture affects you and your child? And where can you grow in this? Because if you haven't been called to it yet, it's gonna come. So enjoy. I just really wanted to talk about, and I know that like you were like, send me questions, let me prep for this. And I was like, yeah, it's just gonna be fine. <laughs> My favorite. Yeah, I'm such a jerk like that. Because I really just wanted us to like be able to like have a conversation about how this is really important and why people should care about intersections of oppression. I think this is one of those things that when you start talking about for a lot of people, especially people who aren't like in the field of work that we do, right? You hear 
um, about intersections of oppression and people just sort of like, you get this like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the glazed over eyes, as well as like this feeling of, oh my God, you're going to tell me what else I need to do that's different or wrong, that I'm doing wrong, right? Like there's just this constant feeling of criticism, I think, that comes to people when we talk about diversity and inclusion um, and equity. And I think it's really important to talk about in terms of like for parents who have trans kids, because I think sometimes they think that this doesn't really affect them. And it does, right? It affects all of us. When we're thinking about talking with families about intersections of oppression, when it comes to like, all they can see is like, I've got this trans kid. I haven't met a single parent. I don't know if you've met a single parent either who doesn't recognize the weight of their kid's trans identity, right? Like most of the time I hear from parents, I'm so afraid of what their life's going to be like now. So how do you have those conversations? What sorts of things do you feel like are important to bring up when talking with families about being a part of a marginalized population? A couple of things come to mind. I, I think these conversations, as you're suggesting, come up at a variety of different starting points. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can share an example where recently I was talking with someone who racially would identify as part of a traditionally marginalized group, mm-hmm. but had no interest, at least at the beginning of the conversation, in thinking about issues pertaining to gender identity. Mm-hmm. And as the conversation progressed, we framed it as something that was really meaningful from an intersectionality point of view. And we started to talk about how race and gender intersect in a way that for this person would mean danger. So I think that's relevant because sometimes, as we know about intersectionality, the more intersections we have, uh, the more danger we might feel we're in. And that may or may not support us in being able to consider how all of those things come together. You know, in the conversation with this person, one of the things that I came up for me as we were talking and that I shared was the high uh, rates of violence and death by very, very violent means and hate crimes against trans women of color in particular. There were 53 people killed just in 2021. And that, as we know, there's lots of intersections there that would signal danger. Right? We don't just have trans individuals. We have individuals who identify as female. Black or Latinx. So the danger is very present. A lot of people might feel really frightened by this, but it is part of our job as as you experience every day, day in and day out, to be able to open up the possibility to talk about that and see how that impacts every family, every individual. I think that one of the things that might be interesting to even just like discuss as we're as as you were talking, I thought, I don't even know if people know what intersections mean. If you haven't done equity training, you know, and so many of us haven't. And if you are a white person, it's one of those things that you don't really have to think about uh, too terribly much. But then there are all these different identities that we hold, right? And so the concept of intersectionality is really about when your identity and when multiple parts of your identity like come together. You mentioned trans, female, and race right? That's three things coming together to create a much riskier situation. 
I want to rephrase that because it's not about, it's not riskier. And when we're talking about danger, it's not that the person is putting themselves at risk, right? It's about oppression and it's about society. It's about three parts of you that society pushes down on that are coming together to create that pressure of all these different things that can happen for a person who holds multiple identities that are marginalized. And I think here you're bringing up a, a couple of really interesting things. One is that, you know, when I think about danger, I, I think about this from an evolutionary perspective and from a nervous system perspective. And when we think about how we're wired to respond beyond what's explicit and knowable, right? a lot of our responses are automatic and implicit. There are responses that sometimes come up to very subtle, very nuanced things in our environment. Not to say that they're completely beyond our control, but control is not what we're leading with. Um, mm -hmm. That that's not something that your full consciousness and cognitive mind is going to capture at the outset. It's probably going to kick in later, but by then, the nervous system has already determined that there is some kind of danger or threat to respond to in order to preserve the survival of you and yours, because the nervous system doesn't just respond to an individual threat. The nervous system is not necessarily individualistic, but it's, it's a little more collective in that it's also going to do something to protect those closest to you or closer to you and your community or family. I think a lot of the implicit quote unquote, dangerous things that our nervous system might be responding to are often very subtle and bulked into what you're also describing um, as a you know very pointed definition of intersectionality. A lot of this also kind of gets uh, paired up with biases, right? And how those function at an implicit or explicit level. You know, all of this combines with uh, intersectionality being something that is not self-contained. And here I'm sort of loosely quoting some of Kimberly Crenshaw's explanation of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Intersectionality doesn't just come in in terms of the self, right? It's not just who I say I am, but how those things are defined for people are on a spectrum that evolves depending on how you intersect with your own community, with your own family, with culture, with linguistics, uh, with socioeconomic status, how you intersect with institutions. Combined with all of that, there is a propensity for the nervous system to act or react depending on what it's determining also. It's going to preserve your survival and reduce the amount of threat. Right? So this, we're, I'm starting to bring in a lot of different things here with neurobiology and intersectionality to kind of give a larger context of how expansive this conversation can be and how, as you pointed out earlier, it matters for everyone. So as you're talking there, a couple of things come to mind. Like I've heard many times from people like Brene Brown say things like, we like to think that we're thinking beings that sometimes feel when the truth is that we are feeling beings that sometimes think. And when it comes to threats and when it comes to our nervous system and the way that our body responds to things, like emotions get a first crack at everything. We like to pretend that's not the case. I know some people who are like, I just don't feel things. And I'm like, that's not entirely accurate, right? Like you may not recognize that you're feeling them, but you are feeling them. Your body is responding to them. But then we jump so quickly into cognition sometimes, right? And, and because our brains are just meaning making machines and the, the way our brains go about meaning making is often wrong. Our brains are great liars. And especially when dealing with a threat, right? Like, cause the brain's job is really about in those moments, safe, not safe 
good, bad, it's all about protection. When we don't recognize that about ourselves, boy, do we make a lot of missteps, you know? And so then when you were talking about the way that those intersections show up in all these different parts of our lives, right? Like with our family and our culture and linguistically and institutions, I was like, yeah, you know, because the, the threats are different in every place. The way that people see you is also a big part of it. I have a kid that I work with and we were just talking the other day about how he's like in his early twenties now and I've worked with him for a long time, um, seen him all the way through transition. And he said, he was like, it's the craziest thing to be accused of mansplaining and to be seen as a white man and all of the privilege that comes along with that. When like, I'm also hold this incredibly marginalized identity as a trans person and then was socialized as a girl. So all of these different pieces are coming into play for him as he's sitting there at his job and his boss is saying, did you need to like talk better to women? You know? And he's like, what? <laughs> um, but that's, that's all part of it, right? Like it's not just the identities we hold, but it's also the way that people perceive us and treat us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Intersectionality, as I think of it, relates a lot to your example because there is a way in which it explains why the more intersecting identities you have that also connect with being traditionally oppressed or marginalized, then the outcomes for you are going to be worse, unfortunately. Right? We saw this, we st still are seeing this in the pandemic with COVID. The more you intersect with identities such as being a BIPOC person, being somewhere on the gender spectrum that's not being cisgendered, being uh, someone who has some more of the invisible intersectional traits around health, for example, having cardiovascular disease or hypertension, which are also often linked with being a person of color because of healthcare disparities. But I could keep going. All of these factors have meant that these people with these intersectional identities have died, mm -hmm. or have suffered worse, longer term negative outcomes from being ill through COVID-19. So intersectionality often helps us understand why some people who say they are some things or who we assume are some things, because we, we often are fooled, as you were saying through Brene Brown's quote, we're fooled to think that what we see is what is, right? And we neglect to consider that lots of our identities or way of, ways of being are invisible and internal. But all of these things mean um, that they can explain why outcomes are worse, unfortunately, for some people. Now, on the other hand, uh, intersectionality doesn't just have a relationship with negative outcomes. Intersectionality also means that how people are and how they interact with their families, with their communities, how they contribute collectively, provides for so much more richness. In that often it can bring factors of privilege or it can bring opportunities to some, again, depending on not just who they are and how they are, but what assumptions we're making about them. So it's a very complex issue all along the spectrum of oppression and privilege. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Intersections can have a huge negative effect on us, but they can also have a huge positive effect, right? When we can build up or support or empower a disenfranchised group, it actually benefits all of us. I think about trans women so often um, as they are so marginalized and oppressed and hurt 
the concept of TERFs, which is a trans-exclusive feminist, right? So somebody who's like for women, but don't necessarily, they don't say that, many of them would say, no, I believe that trans women are women. I just don't think that they're like the same kind of woman as me. And that experience is another way of othering and separating. And we don't realize that when we build up trans women, we're actually building up all women and how important and powerful that is. It doesn't take away from us. And I think that's one of the things that happens often when we get really nervous about empowering people who are different than we are. That usually means that we were gaining something by their from their oppression. I just want to encourage people to think about it. like if I'm nervous about like trans people are now everywhere, right? It seems like trans kids are everywhere. It seems like trans women are everywhere. I'm so nervous about like bathroom bills. What does that mean that we're gaining from the oppression of trans people? And how does that affect you now that you are the parent of a trans kid? Big questions, hard questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of uh, the more enlightening readings I've ventured into recently has been The Some of Us by Heather McGee. A lot of what she has found through her research and a lot of what she explains in her writings, which is really uh, based on stories that really clicks with my kind of thinking and and Mm. feeling systems. Me too. Uh, but she talks a lot about how, unfortunately, and we could talk forever probably about the reasons underlying this, but how a lot of the ways in which we function in our society is to be very zero-sum. A gain for you means a loss for me. If you uh, get to do certain things and use uh, the same bathroom as me, I somehow lose because of that. These paradigms are absolutely untrue and incorrect. And in fact, through her story, she tells a lot about how communities have suffered around racial disparities, for example, where because uh, the the white community complained because some of the African-American citizens were using the same community building, the same pool, um, then that pool got closed down, never it opened up, and nobody in the community actually got to use the community center. Right. There was There was no way in which anyone benefited from that closure. Right? And that's what I think we can expand, extrapolate into how all of our society and all of us individually and collectively are impacted when somebody, whoever it is, whatever their intersecting identities might be, can't receive equitable care, equitable participation in the justice system, equitable education. Nobody wins. And those are all things that we hear about. I think at least I'm most used to hearing those things about race. Right. But I can apply every single one of those things that you just said to to gender. I had a school reach out to me the other day and ask, we're going to apply for this grant for $10,000 to support LGBTQ kids. How can how how would you recommend we spend this money? And I was like, tutors. And they were like, what? And I was like, tutors, trans kids, when you are going through life all day, every day, feeling othered and oppressed and like you're getting harassed and people are staring at you it's so hard to focus in school and so like the use of tutors would be one of the ways that you could help offset that oppression and she was like i never thought about that i'm like yeah it's toxic stress you know absolutely absolutely i mean that's exactly the point right who is suspended more often in our public school system 
LGBTQI plus black girls. Yeah, 100%. There's a, in my community, um, there was a big investigation into one of the big school districts here. Um, and they found very clearly that the district was over disciplining students of color. Like the district is mostly white and the vast majority of suspensions and detentions and disciplinary actions were given to students of color and students with disabilities. I had a, as the time I was working with a kid who was a um, black autistic kid and he kept getting in trouble at school. And I was like, I, I finally had to like point out like, can we just talk about how the, this kid is not doing things that are developmentally inappropriate for him, but he's facing this at school. Mm-hmm. So we've got it. And he's, like big for his age right like he's a big black kid but being able to recognize and call those things out too in a way that isn't accusatory but also kind of is (laughs) absolutely i think it's it's important to acknowledge you know coming back to what we were discussing earlier regarding our nervous system and how it may respond automatically because it decides faster than our cognitive minds can what might include a threat or a danger to us or our our closer people, our loved ones. But that doesn't mean that we can't re-engage the thinking mind a, a few seconds, a few minutes, even a few hours or days or years later to try and develop some consciousness around how do we want to be different? How do we need to be called out in particular because of our intersection with privilege, which means we have more resources to learn and understand and be different and do better. It doesn't have to necessarily be a blaming conversation or a shaming conversation because nobody really learns or changes in in shame to echo Brene Brown a little bit again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But still, it's important for us, all of us, to be accountable about the ways in which we need to do better so that we're not again in the zero-sum game so that we can support the growth and thriving of, of all of us because that impacts everyone. Yeah. I think that one of the things that happens is we're afraid to be wrong, right? And culturally in America, wrong is bad, right? We need to know things. We need to be right. And I think that one of the things that's so helpful is, you know, in schools, they talk all the time about having a growth mindset. And that is not something that should leave us. I remember a time in my life for sure that I had to do some work around being able to like accept feedback around things that I was getting wrong in terms of oppression. Cause I'm white and I was raised by a privileged white family and most of my identities are privileged. And so learning about how to hold on to like, yes, this is what I've been taught. Yes, this is what I've learned. This is how I live. And there's room in there for growth. And that doesn't make me bad, right? It's that shame piece again. That doesn't make me a bad person. This is how I was wired. The more and more I've learned about white supremacy, the more and more I'm like, this is screwing up me too as a white person, right? Like, this is not okay. The same thing about like the patriarchy and masculinity. I don't understand why, um, or toxic masculinity. I don't understand why men aren't super pissed about it. Um, When we're corrected, right? This comes, I feel like, with pronoun conversations all the time too right? But when we're corrected, how to take that information in and also like recognize the hurt, right? And sort of sit with that feeling of like, oh shit, I just offended you. And I just hurt you. And I just acted from a position of power and privilege. And 
I misused it. But I can also listen to what you're telling me and thank you for that information. And it doesn't have to be a big thing anymore. Like, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Once you can accept that this is part of who, like, your programming, and it is, right? Transphobia is part of our programming. White supremacy is part of our programming. Homophobia is part of our programming, in this country at least. It's really important when we recognize, like, this is part of my programming. I can deprogram and reprogram. But it takes a conscious effort, and it takes humility, and it takes me trying to get it right. I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to get it right. You know, I think exactly what you're saying is connecting all a lot of the pieces here. White supremacy culture is directly associated with perfectionism. Mm -hmm. This idea that you know, white cisgendered heterosexual males re resembled a, a deity of some kind, and then everyone else should aspire to become just like them is is a disservice to everyone absolutely in particular those who are not identifying as white cisgender heterosexual males but it is also a disservice to white males who it's impossible for them to be perfect no human being can ever even come close to this construct of perfection in fact a lot of a lot of people who are moving towards perfectionism we know very well suffer greatly in terms of mental health disorders and yeah certainly I, I, I see this a lot as I'm, I'm sure you might and other ones of our colleagues might as well. We get to see and sit with a lot of males who identify in these ways that white supremacy culture elevates who are deeply suffering. And, yeah. and at the same time, you know, I think for all of us to be able to acknowledge this, especially as you were pointing out earlier in the role of a parent, mm -hmm. right, to be able to, to receive a redirection, perhaps a correction from our children allows for us to be more expansive as human beings, allows for us to combat ageism and understand that our young people, our youth, our kiddos can deliver so much wisdom and that we all benefit when we listen. Yeah. That's another way in which intersectionality matters to all of us, right? And to be able to sit with the humility of, I can learn. Nobody, at least that I know, or perhaps that you might know, wants to ever injure or hurt anybody, right? That's where our mistakes really, really sting. I mean, uh, sometimes I feel like I do, um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, but I think then I, that's that like reactionary part, right? Like my body goes, I'm, I'm going to, I want to murder you. And then my brain goes, that, that's bad. That's a bad <laughs> idea. Right. <laughs> There, there you go. That's a perfect example of the automatic then like, you know, giving mm -hmm. space for some more thoughtful pause. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think about like, I can learn, right? Like what you said. And I think about that in terms of like parents and the parents that I've worked with and the kids that I worked with and the families that I've worked with and continue to work with and how one of the number one thing, like one of the most common things that I hear from parents is, I don't know anything about this. I feel so lost. I feel so confused. And then our answers become no's because we don't know, right? Like, so it's just no, 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 no. No, you can't dress like that. No, you can't get your hair cut. No, you can't. Because we aren't learning and because we don't take the time to listen and try and figure it out, we become our child's oppressors. And ugh, I'm just going to name the like physical sensation that I just experienced as I said that. And that was like, my stomach turned and like, I've even feel like a little bit of like a sting of tear in the back of my eye as I sit in it, you know, it's 
that's a terrible feeling. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, and, you know, if we connect some of the things we've been discussing, it is interesting to sit with the idea that we often become oppressors because we're reacting or responding to an implicit sense of danger. Mm -hmm. If I allow my child to sit with all of these potential intersecting identities and make all of these choices and, and, and hold whatever comes with that, is it going to cause them harm? Is it going to cause them pain? Will they go out into a community that is cruel and mm -hmm. perhaps unable to embrace them as, as we wish our children were embraced? Then yeah. am I doing them a disservice by allowing that instead of saying no? Yeah. It's, it's a big question, and it's a question that certainly is about life and death for a lot of people, parents of trans black kids. Yeah. It's just so much bigger than I think one conversation is going to take us. But I think that we need to, like, give ourselves permission. I think it all like there's so many things we need to give ourselves permission for here, right? Like, one is to be imperfect. Two is to recognize that we have been programmed, right? Like, that this is part of socialization, that we are all wired for to think and believe certain things. And that doesn't make them the right things, right? And so giving ourselves permission to sort of question, why do I think that? Why do I believe that? Where's that coming from? And really just get curious about it. God, I cannot stay away from the Brene quotes on act. This one is totally on accident too. But she says curiosity is a shit starter. And it's totally true. It really is. And I don't know, like also the number of parents who've had to tra trans kids come out and say, then after a while they say, gosh, you know, I'm so envious and jealous of their experience because I, I never would have gotten the chance to explore this as a kid. That's that's another excellent example of how oppression hurts all of us. We can't often in all consciousness and, you know, with access to our full agency, embrace and support our own children, our community, everyone that we intersect with, not necessarily by choice, but because we have internalized oppressive beliefs. It's an enactment of a long history of, of pain that we've all inherited, but that we can undo and deconstruct, better understand so that we do that less and are more in the way that we choose to be. Well, Martha, I'm going to wrap us up for today and we can continue these conversations in the future. But it's sort of my philosophy on talking about intersections and oppression is that people can only take so much at a time. So I feel like we're going to keep these ones short. <laughs> um, Works for me. I know for me, it was really overwhelming. Um, when I, the first, not the first time that I was introduced to the concept, but the first time it started to really click for me. And I was like, Oh my God. And then I just saw it. I just saw it everywhere. And it was really overwhelming. So I don't want that experience for people right today. Um, but we'll just take like a teaspoon, not a fire hose dose, you know? That sounds great. Anything to live in that space that allows for helpful and meaningful learning and not to go into overwhelm or withdrawal. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else we want to make sure that families are going to walk away with today? When trying to hold space for intersectionality, it is a space that, as you described earlier, demands curiosity. It's a little bit of an interesting combination of words there, but um, it really requires that we sit and wonder 
in that we allow for our brains to be not constricted but expansive. Um, and sometimes it helps for me to use a metaphor of pacing or rhythm, right? Intersectionality and curiosity are not going to come from an assembled, structured cognition that is going to tell us exactly how we're going to get through this. What questions should I ask when I am curious in a right. robotic sense? But if you if you are in any way familiar with music or dance or rhythms and how those feel in your body, even how nice it might feel when somebody pats your back rhythmically, mm-hmm. uh, or you know how lovely the the branches on the trees move when the wind is moving at different speeds, holding space can be something like that. It's something connected to the body, to rhythms that can move. In any speed that you like, they can go fast, they can go slow, they can go medium, but they are consistent and they have a pacing that allows for you to take time and take space and not have to rush to make it anything. Yeah. Well, Martha, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you and everything you bring to this work and to the world. Oh, same here. So glad that you're in my sphere. Thank you. Thank you for letting me think with you and feel with you and talk with you. It's always a pleasure and I am so fortunate to call you a friend. I hope this conversation leaves you thinking about the world around you and how it has been designed to support or oppress people who don't fit the mold. So often we hear people say, the system is broken, but it isn't. The system was designed this way. This is exactly what was supposed to happen, but it doesn't have to stay that way. The change starts with each of us. Camp Wildheart and our community of listeners are here to support you through this journey. So if there's anything we can do to support you in supporting your kid, please let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Wild Heart Society, and you can send us an email at camp at wildheartsociety.org. We also have a private Facebook group for parents to connect with others and ask questions, and it's called Camp Wild Heart Community. Just type it into your search, fill out the information, click join, and I'll approve you. Thanks again to Martha for sharing with us all of the complexities of being a person who lives in a world that was just not designed for any of us to live the way that we need to in order to be truly free. Thanks again for joining us for camp. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future campfires and give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us and we want to make sure that anyone who wants one or needs one knows that there's a bunk for them at Camp Wild Heart. <laughs>